Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Hello, Russ. And I had wanted to point something out before you talk about the sameness of my background. My head has been covering up this. But what this is, is a chart of the chain of events that happens when a certain spanning tree bug in Sonic tickles a certain MC lag bug and the chaos and confusion that reigns. So that's what this little state diagram oh, is. Look at that. Look at that. And and I thought that you had left. There's like a hole in your whiteboard that's just about head shaped. <laughs> and I thought maybe you had left that hole for your head. I mean, I have a head shaped hole behind me because there's no point in putting something directly behind me. Nobody can see it anyway. Well, well yeah, but as you move around a little bit, people can see different things. Yeah, maybe that makes it more interesting. I don't and, know. And there, and there are those people who ask me about why do I have a gold record in my well, I have to explain, no, that's not a gold record. I have to explain what it is. Ah, okay. Well, maybe we'll get that in a second. All right. And the other voice you hear is Peter Jones from Cisco. And Peter is here just talking about Ethernet today because it's a fascinating topic and there's so much stuff going on in the world of Ethernet. So tell us about the gold there, Peter. So as you might remember, Russ, um, my Cisco history starts in 2005, and mid-2006, I got chucked on this project that says, hey, go build this thing called NGWC. And it's like, well, that's the next-gen wiring closet, because everything is the next-gen. So that became a help architect what became the 3850, both software oh, and okay. hardware and ASIC, and which became the Cat9K. And so that's one of the early UADP slash Doppler chips, because I was close enough to the ASIC team that they decided they would give me a wafer. Nice. So, oh. yes, I, I, I have a wafer on my um, wall, which is like one of those things. Because, if, as you remember, Russ, you know, Cisco does a bunch of stuff, right? Some of which is very sexy and some of which isn't. So, I work <laughs> for the not sexy business. I describe us as being building the crawlers and cameras of the internet. Because the enterprise switching, we have, you know, more than half the volume, which means given our product launched in 2013, and where we are now, right, we've been through a full cycle. So more than half the world's offices are using my stuff to get their work done. So this, this is a very cool thing. No, it is. It's a very cool thing. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, my, my biggest thing back here is my original work disk. My five and a quarter floppies from my Z1, my Z100 days. Uh, that's, get, that's getting too old. For, I mean, what's <laughs> interesting is a lot of people I talk to, they're like, yeah, you know, I got through college and I was like programming and doing this. I'm like. Yeah, you know, I started partway through university because it seemed like a good plan. Yes. So I, th I think I'm, I'm less of an a absolute tech enthusiast than some other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got my I got my my tech degrees long after I had started working in tech, like five, ten years after I had started in tech. So you know, whatever. D so different, mind you, your your path is particularly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know many people in our business who actually have a degree from a seminary. <laughs> Now, yes, so what two, that means from a, th from a point of view is that when Russ is preaching about networking, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> you must have you must have heard that one before. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. So it's been a couple of years since we've talked about Ethernet. Um, first of all, it was the Ethernet 50th anniversary. Let's talk about that a little bit because um, I find it interesting that Ethernet has been around for 50 years. I mean, like... I, Okay, I won't say how old I am. <laughs> so I was nine when it was invented. Yeah, so so, so, so it's older than me, and it's, it still is older than me. Yeah, that's that's pretty Actually, much. Yeah. Hang on. 
Hang on. No, it's no, the other no. way. No. It's the other yes. way around. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. it's almost that's, as old as I am. Yeah, it's almost as old as I am as well. Yeah, that's that's pretty close. Yeah, so um, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, you know, it all started with Aloha, and it all started with just trying to figure out how to use the end, the, the whole idea that this would never work, right? That this that statistical multiplexing would never work. It would never. You would never be able to do statistical multiplexing. So I don't know. It's been 50 years Maybe talk a little bit about like the 50 year stuff. Is, is anything exciting going on? Is it like? So, okay. So there was a, there was a bunch of stuff earlier in the year. So the computer history museum did a 50th anniversary thing that I I was lucky enough to go to. Um, They had a bunch of interesting speakers. The key point of course, is they had Mr. Metcalf show up. Um, You probably may be aware that the other, the other half of the duo is a guy called Dave Boggs. Unfortunately, Dave passed away. I think last year or the year before. Um, and so we had a bunch of people talking about the impact of what it's done. And it's it's sort of interesting because Bob calls this, and yes, I can call him Bob. I've met him and I actually know his email address and it's quite amusing. Um, he describes Ethan as an innovation brand. And from some points of view, he describes the process, the progress between Ethernet and Ethernot because most Ethernots have failed, right? Although we've seen many of them in our time. Uh, token ring, ArcNet, um, RPR, what was it? RPR, RPR yeah, 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 all that. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. Of them. Um, and at one stage, there was a proposal to call Wi-Fi wireless Ethernet, but that moved away. Um, and there have been cases where people have done things which require quite a long stretch to understand of Ethernet. I'm thinking at the minute Epon, for example. Um, but I think ultimately Ethernet has been about a an approach which produces things people can use. And I think it's a little like um, some companies where you measure them by what they don't do rather than what they do do. And so Ethernet has been pretty serious about trying to stay pure to, I guess, a vision of networking, right? We know exactly what our job is. It's to deliver packets from, from this place to that place. And we don't do anything else than that. We don't try and get above that level. We don't make anything too complicated. And that's, you know, that's led innovation to be built on top of it. So if you yeah. go back to networking in like the late 80s, early 90s, um, there was an awful lot of options of stuff you could actually do. And I was talking earlier to, to Russ about uh, 89. I actually was on a plane from Western Australia to Nashville in Tennessee um, to go and work as a field engineer for a company. And on the way, I read Tenenbaum's second edition of Computer Networks because I really needed to understand more stuff. And I think Ethernet's great advantage is it stayed within its lane and basically is pretty clear about what it does and doesn't do. The result of that has been, and if you think of a higher level, right, there are all these other protocols. It was DECnet and there was Sperry and there was SNA and there's all this other stuff. So Ethernet is enabling technology, right? Although it's very cool and everything in the world uses it, it's enabling technology. It's not an end in itself. So our goal is to make sure, is to make it easy to do, put other things on top of us. Now, that's very noble. It's sometimes really irritating because people go, well, why does it matter? And people often don't want to pay for stuff that doesn't matter. And so it's a tricky balance between, look, if we get it right, no one cares. And please look at us at how smart we are. It's it's sort of in the middle there. Um, but I think the, the key thing is, you know, we don't have, okay, in general, we don't have half duplex and CSM ACD anymore, except for a few cases. And so the Ethernet, a lot of what original Ethernet Mac is doesn't exist anymore. But the approach exists, the frame format exists. Um, 
Russ, I don't know if you remember at one stage there was a conversation about moving everything to EUI 64s because we were yes. going to run out of 48-bit addresses. Mm-hmm. And that failed even worse than IPv6. IPv6 at least has stayed alive and is growing, right? The EUI 64 died in a ditch. Um, and so in reality, very few people build large layer two networks anymore. And if they do, we generally tell them that it's probably a bad idea and it probably might hurt yourself. So layer two networks these days are usually pretty small, but they make sure that the layer three, which runs on top of them, can get its job done. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting to start with about Ethernet is that, you know, we tend to in the networking world when we build pack, uh, when we build protocols is we tend to get too big for our bridges. We think, oh, I can solve this. Therefore, I'm going to solve that and I'm going to solve that. And by the way, somebody over here, I mean, I have a, I have a perfect example, by the way, which is, um, you remember our bridges. Of course. Right? Yeah. You remember our bridges? And I even um, remember, I remember Span, um, the bridges between, um, Span, source route bridges between yeah. Token Ring and Ethernet. Yes. And that were so, really ugly. Yeah. So, I mean, Trill, I thought was in a good place. It was a good thing when it started. But then we got this crazy idea that we needed to be able to solve, um, this weird corner case where, oh, um, Look, you might have a standard um, spanning tree between two trail bridges, and the trail bridges have to be able to talk over the spanning tree bridge and not cause loops. And you have to be able to randomly position our bridges anywhere in your standard spanning tree network. It's like, and that added so much complexity to the spec that it ended up like, who's ever going to implement this? This is crazy. This is done. And so we do this all the time. And one of the things that's always impressed me about Ethernet is it doesn't happen in Ethernet. It doesn't seem to. The focus is on one thing. Deliver packets from physical, from physical interface to physical interface. Done. Don't care about all the other garbage. Get this done. Well, there are, there are a few extra things on top of that. We also yeah, well, do this strange thing about putting power on the same set of wires. Yes, yes. And we've been, we've been known to do things where we timestamp packets so we can transfer timing. And we've yes. been known, we've been known to get really complicated. I don't know if you've been follow, if you followed TSN over time, but the AVB slash TSN stuff ends up with you basically queue you control queues based on time, and that gets sort of complicated when you go to TSN and they basically this effectively a few parts they distribute very accurate time, which I'm all in favour of, but then they basically take reservations across the network at particular times, so it feels a little like ATM. Yes. And I mean, it has the yes. same problems in adoption, but yes. to a large extent, that wasn't Ethernet's action. Yeah. That was more dot one's action. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm I saying – yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Peter, what uh, what's your opinion about – I was just thinking about Ethernet OAM. Um, I had a chance to implement it, I think, once um, where I actually – where it was where it would have been important. But things like that, to me, it, it feels like it doesn't belong there. Um, I don't, what, what's, your, what's your thought? So I think – I think that gets a little back to, so you should have enough OEM at the Ethernet layer to actually test what the Ethernet stuff is doing. Now, do I happily believe in all the different layers? That got a bit complicated. So I think they probably overreached a little bit. And I think that was probably because, so some people, so the MEF, so it's an interesting question as to how much 
of fundamental services are Ethernet-based? And is that a good plan? Um, and I, I would tend to say that over time, I mean, Russ, you must remember um, God, the, AT, the Ethernet over ATM stuff, LAN emulation. Oh, oh my gosh. LAN. Which is another example of we keep inventing the same stinking thing over and over again and calling it different things. We went through this with Frame Relay. We went through it with Lane. We've yep. gone through it with Lisp. It's the same thing. <laughs> yep. So I think, I mean, I'm going to weasel this a little bit. There is absolute justification for some of the IAM, but yeah. I think it may have become overcomplicated to solve really complex problems, and you might have been better doing it some other way. Right? So, so there is everything a service provider could do, and there's the stuff they should do. And maybe we'd be better off limiting our standards to the stuff they should do. Um, there's a very wise man once said to me, right? Standard is not left, not done like a book. You're not done until there's nothing left to take out. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Right. And, and it's okay to build stuff on top of it, either through, um, either through TLVs or whatever, but the base spec should be simple. Like the basic concept should be as simple as you can make it. Now, and if you and if you look in, if you look at how, what happened, so added to three at the minute is I don't know five thousand pages or something. The definition of the Mac isn't very large and hasn't changed really for a very long time. What's interesting is it's actually defined, the formal spec is defined in Pascal. And someone actually keeps an implementation of it in VHDL to make sure that new changes work. Yeah. But in general, the Ethernet group fundamentally does physical layer stuff, right? Because the Mac doesn't, the Mac interface doesn't change, the Mac doesn't change because that's sort of the, the contract between us and the outside world. And so we, we figure out how to get an Ethernet frame between point A to point B over different media. Now, some of them are simple. Um, so like a, a, a low-speed optics media is pretty simple. Um, you know, until recently, they were running NRZ signaling, which is really simple. Um, and they didn't have to run effect because the, the, the channel was so good. Base-T has always been very nasty because the channel is really crappy. Um, right now, what you're seeing is the high-speed optics is moving to complex signaling. Um, so they, they went through a PAM signaling uh, in 25 gig per lane and they're now moving to what's labeled as coherent, but is basically a QAM signaling because again, right, you're trying to get more data over the, over the same path and it gets harder. But our job in general is to figure out a way to get packets from point A to point B um, effectively and economically. That's, that that's actually... There, there, ahead, there, are, there are some sidelines. And so the, you know, EPON is a lot more complicated, but it's really targeting a different problem to solve. I think of EPON somewhat like I think of DOCSIS, right? Because that particular topology makes a lot of sense, but it's a fairly special case. Yeah. So I think that's interesting, something you just said there, that the interface, the Mac interface, is written in Pascal or specified in Pascal. The, the, Mac, which, the Mac definition, right? The yes, definition of the Mac itself. Is written in, which I find interesting anyway. I mean, it should be updated to Yang, don't you think? But anyway. So. No, 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 no. Yang is a management interface, right? You wouldn't write yeah. a function. Well, that's you true. You couldn't write yeah. a function yeah. in Pascal. In yeah, that's Yang. true. So, okay. So it's written in Pascal and it hasn't changed. Which is, I think, a key well, secret. Yes. I mean, it changes very little. Anytime yeah. someone goes, look, I want to go play with the Mac, it's like everyone is concerned because it's so stable and everyone's influenced yeah. it. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, the group at the minute tends to have a bunch of people who are much more familiar with the physical layer. So yeah. if we leave the top layer alone, then our contract with the outside world doesn't change. 
which means no one really cares how we get stuff done underneath. I mean, the way I used to describe it is, you know, in the standards, we often end up with very detailed technical arguments about the particular encoding to be used or the particular effect to be used. Yeah. And while it's very interesting for inside baseball, I describe it, my customers don't care if we deliver the bits bits via carrier pigeon. Yeah. Right. And that, I think, is the abstraction layer stuff, which is good because we've made that our problem and no one else has to care. And see, this is this is the key to having a focus on solving one problem at the lower layers. At the upper layers, I get it. There's lots of problems to be solved and you want to use the minimum number of technologies possible. But at the lower layers, when you go down the stack, the opposite is true. The simpler yep. the protocol, the more problems you can solve with that simplicity. And so, you know, at, it's, at it's, 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 do you build a Swiss army knife or do you build a single knife? Right. And the, and, and the basis of a Swiss army knife is still a bunch of individual blades that are designed to yep. do specific things. Right. Yep. And, and we often forget this in networking that we I mean, want to solve think, every case. I think, I think you are correct in the sense that if you build the right simple tool, it gets used in a lot of places. Yes. We tend to, the problem is we tend to try and foresee all those places ahead of time, which we don't really understand. And so we try and adjust the tool to make them all work. That's right. And I mean, I've certainly been guilty of that in, in standards work. You say, look, there's this really cool thing. We should do it. Here's this use case. But often when you put that stuff in, it either doesn't get implemented or it doesn't get used very much. Yeah. I mean, you know this as well, right? You, you have Cisco and history, you have history in Cisco tech. Yes. How do you know yeah. if the feature is never used? There is no bug on it. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's what we're doing FR routing too. If there's no if there's no bugs, like if nobody's filing, it, yeah, if nobody's filing issues, then it's not being used, right? Yeah. Basically, it's either perfect, it's perfectly implemented, which is never which, gonna happen. <laughs> perfectly implemented and implemented the same by everyone, right? Yes. Or okay. and, and and now now I can see the pig flying past me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or nobody's using it, right? Yeah. And and so that's the way it works. So so sort of back on the theory. So the theory that we try and very hold very hard to an ethernet is that when it gets to the customers, you plug it in, it just should work. Now, that's a little easier to deal with sort of in the access layer and where consumers see it more. I mean, it gets a little bit more complicated with, with the higher speed stuff because it is a bit more um, temperamental, I'd say. But the basic, the value prop is you plug it in and it works. And in general, we've kept to that. And that makes things a lot simpler, right? So although Wi-Fi is a very cool technology, um, site planning for Wi-Fi is somewhat of a black art and it moves around a little bit. And so deploying Ethernet in general is a lot simpler. And everyone who consumes a wireless interface, it's running everything somewhere. So it's a little bit like the, you know, behind every great man is a great mother or it's like behind every wireless thing is a uh, is Ethernet. Yeah. But the fact that it... So the other thing I'd say is, you know, originally Ethernet was fairly purist. You know, the motto was 10 times the speed for three times the price, which was a great idea, right? And that, that drove, you know, 10 to 100 to a gig to 10 gig, and then it sort of failed, right? Because 100 gig was actually really hard. If you remember the original 100, Russ, it was 10 lanes of 10, right? Yeah, and it was, was not easy say, to yeah. adopt. No, yeah, not easy to do. And at the same time, we did 40. And 40 became a lot easier to build. And that's where I think we ended up with the sort of the one lane, four lane story of what you could actually build. And thereafter, it's gone up in pieces, right? And then next thing we did was, was 25 gig. And it's like, well, why 25? Well, the answer is actually because that's the driven by the speed that the service could handle. So I think the way I think about it is there's sort of the, there's the broad branches and then there's the stuff in the middle. And we're getting better at doing the stuff in the middle. 
which is not, hey, I should go this fast because I always do, but look, what can I achieve at a reasonable cost that's implementable, right? Because we've all seen that, you know, the the very high lane count things, you know, if 400 gig is eight lanes of 50, right, you can deploy it, but it's hard. So I think we get the goal in general is to get to the the one lane, four lane story to make stuff easy to deploy. When you get to that, you get volume and every, everything goes beautifully. Yeah. And and that's the other thing I think we often miss is that volume is important to make to drive the cost down and to get innovation. Um, you know, so we often target a corner case and then we end up with no further innovation because, you know, there's no there's no volume. And so lots of people aren't using it, then you don't get lots of requests and you can't do anything about it. And, and there, I mean, there are, so there are always cases where bits of standards don't get used. And sometimes it's because it just didn't take off and sometimes because it was a poor choice. But, you know, 80.3 is a contribution-led organization driven by individuals. And so if you want to get work done, you go and you do the work. And to some extent, if your work sort of fits in what we consider Ethernet and you're willing to go do it, go for your life. Um, so if you look at the group, there's sort of the copper people and there's the optics people and then there's the pond people and they sort of are all distinct. And now effectively there's there's another sort of subgroup of the car people. And we all try and make sure that we can all get along and let everyone else do the innovation they need to do, but make sure that no one messes anyone else up. So on, on that subject, um, what is ethernet alliances relationship to other bodies like metro ethernet forum or um other things is is there is there a relationship there is there how, how's it's, that it's actually well i think we could actually do a bunch more we don't actually have that many active relationships we probably have we have a contact with mef we have a contact with cover um we don't probably do as much as i'd like to do it but MEF is also quite a different organization in that, that, that they effectively are an SDO. Ethernet Alliance is really an advocacy organization. So we, we advocate for Ethernet everywhere. And the MEF is really a fairly, you know, an important but smaller part of the market. So we're happy to talk to them. They don't, I think they don't think they need to talk to us is probably a guess. Okay. Now, as, as it happens, a friend of mine is the PR director for the communications director for MEF, so I'll probably hear hear from her about this if she hears it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. That's fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's good to I mean, hear so from we, so, <laughs> like, so Ethernet Alliance is a, is a vendor-funded group, right? We're not, we're not very rich, right? We don't make a lot of money from stuff, and so we don't have lots of staff to go do things. So we're happy to collaborate with anyone who wants to talk about Ethernet as a, as a whole. Um, it's just a question of how to make it work. So, for instance, we have a, you know, engagement coming up. I'm going to be lucky enough to probably go to Glasgow for the European Conference on Optics Components, I think it is, ECOC. And while we're there, we'll do some stuff with a group called EPIC, which is the European Photonics Innovation Consortium, something like this. It's basically a bunch of people in Europe who build, who build photonic stuff. And so... Our job really, so there's a couple of things I think about, right? Firstly, our job is to try and plug people together who need to know each other. The next thing is that our job is really to try and explain what it is we built and the value of it. I'm a thorough believer that if people don't understand value, they won't pay for it. And that's where the, the, the problem becomes is Ethernet is, well, connectivity or Ethernet is like oxygen. You don't, you just expect it to be there. You don't think about it till it goes away. And so there's this, Nasty thing about, well, 
if we do a job well, no one needs to know about it, but how do we actually get recognized for it? So our job really is to try and explain the value of Ethernet to people. That's the way I think about it. Okay. So let's go back to the 50th. So, I mean, we started with Ethernet, like you said, being CSMA CD. And now it, that's really very unusual for Ethernet to be deployed with real CSMA CD, right? Correct. With, with, with the minor exception of a particular, of a, of a subsection of the cases for 10 megabit Ethernet over a single pair where they are actually building CSMA CD. But yes, okay. this is a very small part of the market. In general, Ethernet has become a point-to-point -point technology. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at EPON, it's modeled for some extent as a point-to-point -point in terms of there's a logical connection from each each downstream OLT to the ONU. Yeah. So so this goes back to the idea that while the if, interface... If you, if you think about it for a second, it's almost like Ethernet has supplanted PPP. Yes, it has. <laughs> yeah. Well, and frame relay and ATM yeah. and all of that. Right, pretty much everything that was. Well, I was, I was, I was going PPP because you didn't have all the signaling of where your packet's yeah. going to go, etc. Um, mm -hmm. But in reality, PPP served a very different purpose. Yes. Um, so what I think is interesting about that is that the entire nature of Ethernet has shifted over the last fifty years, but the interface, like you said, kind of remains the same, and that is kind of really cool because that shows that you built an interface that can be used for lots of different things, and over time. You've shifted the different things it's used for, but you've not forced everybody to it, rewrite. It, just, it does, does just enough and no more. I mean, yes. this, this is the, you're not, you're not done till nothing's left to take out. Yeah. And so, for instance, there's a new group starting off and they're trying to, okay, so Ethernet in cars is becoming a big thing. Um, there's a lot of attention from all the major manufacturers and they're trying to solve, okay, so, Ethan, so cars are really becoming a small network with both the DC and everything else in them. And they're trying to solve problems with autonomous driving. So you end up with basically there's a big compute cluster in the car and they're trying to figure out how to backhaul stuff from machine vision sensors and do all the processing in, in the car. And they used to use a bunch of old nasty nasty things, LDVS interfaces that are trying to build Ethernet. And at the minute, so they've Ethernet's been defined in a car for 10 megabits, for 100, for a gig, for two and a half, for five, and for 10. And they're now going and doing 25 but they're all symmetric in general. They're trying to do now an asymmetric. We're looking at asymmetric Ethernet for the case where you're backhauling a big sensor. So if you imagine the uh, the, the, the uh, cameras in your car, right? they're these tiny things like yay big. They've got to sit on the outside. They're very heat sensitive. Now they're generating a, a data stream you know, anywhere from 2.5 gig to 25, but they need almost nothing back. And so when we're looking at trying to minimize them and control power, we're saying, well, can we define something where we say it's truly asymmetric? And traditionally with Ethernet, that was sort of, that was not in our religion. But I think we've now become much more flexible to say, okay, let's understand the use case. Does this make sense? Now, in my, from my point of view, I actually think there's a bunch of cases it's going to make sense in. I mean, it's sort of like if you looked at, um, another case someone came up with is, is if you're looking at how you're streaming stuff, for instance, in a concert, right? Streaming video to the screens, right? That's highly unidirectional. So we have a study group starting up to talk about like, does this make sense? Can we do this? And again, it's really about understanding what the use case is and trying to figure out whether Ethernet is the right tool to solve the job, not just a tool. Right, <clears throat> right, yeah. So, yeah, so um, I think that's just interesting that, that it has gone that direction. 
and that that has worked so well for Ethernet to get to just stay that way. That it's that it's always just worked. And, and it wasn't. I don't think at the start you couldn't have planned this out. I think it's probably that the original had just enough in it, and over time the group has been the group has been willing to go and make practical decisions, not necessarily the ones that people wanted. I mean the the trick with the Ethernet group is it's it's an individual vote, and you need seventy five percent of the room to make a technical decision. So getting 75% of a room, which includes your suppliers, your competitors, and your customers, is always challenging. So in general, the Ethernet group is a conservative group because of that. We want to make sure that the value of the brand is there. So talk to us about like what's happened in the last couple of years. Anything really interesting? I mean, you talk about the whole thing with... um... So Singapore is doing a bunch of stuff. Um, It's a lot happening in cars. The bit I care about, which is more industrial and building automation, is running a lot slower than I'd like it to be. I think it will eventually get there, but it's not there now. Going, I mean, the other side is just going faster. Every, you know, we now have groups that are doing what eight eight hundred gig and one point six T, and you go, this is an awful lot of traffic. And I think, as you guys know, right, the the areas driving the top end have changed. I mean, if I look at the Ethernet roadmap, and I'll send you guys a link to it. You know, we have it in sectors, and there's in the middle there's the there's the uh, enterprise sector, which is sort of Ethernet's home. The cars are on this side, which is interesting, but really not me. Industrials down here, over here is service provider, which used to be the place that was driving the bleeding edge, which would give you not much volume and lots of margin, and now it's hyperscaler, which gives you lots of volume and not much margin. So the the people consuming this have got quite different, and the the model they consume it in has got quite different. I mean, if you go and look at, you know, Rush, you can probably remember 10, 15 years back, right? The top end was the search provider routers and each each basic major company, everyone knew their people. It was a very intimate relationship. If right. you look at the web scalers right now, they want everything from white box in general, right? So the, the way it's consumed is different. Right, yes. And so, yeah. So what do you think for the next five to 10 years? Other than I know you're very interested in the industrial side, is there anything else going on? Um, so if you believe what the car OEMs are saying, there'll be a bunch of this through, and I think it's much more bigger in terms of transportation because if they want to make these cars as smart as they do, they have to figure out a better way of doing it. So I think you're going to see transportation, and I think, that go, I mean, starting in cars, but it's going to go through every other piece of transportation. Um I think you're going to see. So, I have a friend who actually runs a company who makes very small Ethernet things that go inside drones. Um, and you go, go to the top end. So, if you think about trying to build a drone, right, most people want to build drones. They're, they're like aeronautic engineers or maybe sensor yeah. engineers. But these days, if you look at maybe a Beagle board or a Raspberry Pi, you can do some pretty simple compute. And we, we're going to see Ethernet stuff built for that size. So the friend in question has a, a you know, an embedded Ethernet switch, which is one inch square, right? Because there's building specifically for that market. So I think you're going to see probably more more products customized for markets where the technology is common, but the packaging is different. And you're going to continue to see on the top end, you know, the web scale is going to continue to drive for higher and higher bandwidth. I mean, anywhere in a system you can build, you can always like run you know, ECMP or something else, but the simplest thing is to run one really big fat pipe. Now, how far we can go on that, that's a sort of a physics question. There's a lot of people really smart doing that work, and they're way beyond me. 
but I don't see that slowing down. Um, I mean, then you get into things like, are we going to see... Um, so these days, it's mostly pluggable. I mean, if you look at the uh, spines, if you look at the leaf switches, right, there's mostly pluggable optics, but they're mostly actual running copper. And then the spine is going to be pluggable optics with, um, you know, SFPs, QSFPs, QSFPDDs, which choose your poison. Where's I going with this thought? <laughs> okay, so any particular link, you can always, you can lag it, you can ECMP it, but a single big link is easier. Now, the one thing, there's been a group that launched recently called the Ultra Ethernet Consortium, um, and I'll send you a link for that. And I think they're trying to solve a problem. And again, this is my reading of what they say. I encourage people to go to the website and take a look at the white paper themselves. They're trying to solve the problem of a big uh, LLM learning cluster where you're putting together 16, 32,000 GPUs and you want to go and train a model that's going to train for a couple of months. Hmm. Now, as I understand it, the way they tend to do this is they build a very large non-oversubscribed network specifically for this purpose. Because the model of work is, you know, you distribute some state early, the GPUs go and crunch for a while, then they all have to share data with each other. And until everyone shared data with, it, with each other, you can't proceed. Okay, so the cost of building and running the GPU side far outweighs everything else. And so what you want to do is optimize the network so it never slows them down. Yeah. So what you tend to see is they're building a non-oversubscribed network, which I don't know very many people have ever got to do. And they're trying to run perfect load balancing and they're trying to reorder on the way out. So actually, a lot because, of people build one-to-one -one non-oversubscribe yeah. nowadays in their data center fabrics because yeah. of jitter. But anyway, continue. I mean, this, and that, that's the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, it's jitter. And you hear, I want low latency, but what I think they want is they want low jitter because the tail latency is what kills them. That makes sense? Because if the yes. GPU is you're running for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. But that says to me that's a quite custom network that I don't think design pattern is shared very well with a with a traditional network. Hmm. Yeah, I think though it depends though on um, we're seeing more and more like uh, when I worked at Hyperscaler, our biggest concern was delay in gender because time to load the website is your primary metric. Yep. And when you have 1,200 services in the back end talking to each other, and it's all east-west traffic, it only takes like six traversals or seven traversals of the fabric, even if there's only 10 or 15 milliseconds in the fabric. So, and, so I, I hear you, and, and I, will, I will bow to your experience. And my <laughs> understanding, of course, is that many hyperscalers do it differently and all think they're right yes. in terms of how they build the networks. Yes. They do, still, and they do. But, but I still think this case is a little different because of the extent of how this workload runs and the sheer cost of doing it at the moment. And it basically hmm. sits there and might run for a couple of months. And so I think their focus is a little more intense, but I would encourage you to go find someone who builds one of these things and ask <laughs> them that question. Because yep. right now I'm running on a bit of, um, I heard from, I heard from, I heard. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine, yeah. So but, that's but one they area. Say, that, that says AI, right? And AI is cool. Right? Yeah, Every, everyone right. needs some AI today. That's right. I can now put AI in the show notes, and everybody will oh, download God. it and listen to it just because we said <laughs> nice. AI. <laughs> so I assume you guys know that large language models hallucinate. 
Yes. Kate, did you hear the story about a lawyer who thought it would be a good idea to get ChatGPT to write his brief and then he submitted yes. it? Yes. And then the defense lawyer said, hang on, these cases don't exist. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. The, the, oh, yes. The judge was very unamused. <laughs> so, so actually, I'm doing a presentation on AI for a conference um, in a couple of months, and it's not a technology conference, so you've never heard of it. But anyway, and one of the things I did was was I started asking a particular large language model different questions, and then every time it would answer the question, I would say, "Can you please give me references to back this up?" And it's really funny because the people it is claiming to be quoting exist and that is their area of study. Yeah. But they but, never said the quote. But, but the particular paper or book <laughs> it is saying to go reference, I just can't seem to find. <laughs> so when when I've when I've done this, the same exercise, I've a, I've asked it, okay, I like it would give me a document that was a real document, even beyond the author of the document. And I'd go look, and there's nothing on that subject in the document. It's yeah. about something else. Yeah. So that I'd ask it, I'd say, "There's no mention of that in this document." And then, it, of course, it apologizes to you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> it and, and to be fair, this is um, this is what it's built for, right? This isn't this. Is, it's not doing the wrong thing. It's just we're not we're not willing to accept what it can do. Yeah. Um, you know, we're saying, well, it feels like a person. So, it, I mean, to a large extent, right? If you if you ask that question from someone you didn't know. You wouldn't trust the answer either. Yes. And um, but that, because, that it, because is, yeah. it becomes authoritative, yes. right? I mean, it's like, yes. I'm sorry, Tom, but if I've heard something from you, I'm like, maybe, and I've heard it from Russ, I go, oh, no, Russ, he's probably right. <laughs> but how do we decide that ChatGPT was probably right all the time? <laughs> yes. Well, have you ever read Stan, Stanley Milgram's research in this area? Mm, A book nope. called Obe Obedience to Authority? It's quite fascinating. He did a series, like we're way off Ethernet now, but he did a series of experiments where he put somebody, an actor in a white lab coat, yep. and he yep. said, shock that person for scientific yep. study. And oh, people, yeah, no, yeah, I've read that one. I, yeah. I know about that one. And people do it. And you're like, wait. And, and Milgram's experiments are why we have IRBs now. Like, yeah. This is why there are rules. Yeah. So, so I think that. You know, so there's been there's clearly been like a transition point because we've been going after quote AI forever, and I don't think we're necessary. And and just for fun, if people want to know some of background AI, I recommend they go read Neuromancer, and probably as as one of the original uh, AI cyberpunk stories. Um, it's Neuromancer by William Gibson. If you haven't read it, you should. And for a while, we used to think. I mean, I did work in a language called Prolog, and this is back in. Oh my god! Eighty-seven, and it was built for doing artificial intelligence things. Yes. And I have a rice cooker which was built a long time ago that claims fuzzy logic. And so, the way I sort of think about it is, is it's like moving from normal numbers to real numbers, right? Because you start, you know, there's the normal number plane, then there's all the stuff around it. And we're moving from stuff that's just defined to stuff that's more questionable. You know, it's like it's an estimate. And so. I mean, large language models seem to have just taken off, right? But we've had machine reasoning forever. So at the minute I'm going, well, you know, large language models are probably not the end of it. Um, certainly, I think we can't continue to increase the size of the training requirements and the training limits because it just won't scale. Then you go, okay, so where do you go next from this? Um, I read an article a while ago. Unfortunately, I can't find it anymore, which said there's a bunch of people looking at simplifying the case so where you can take a lot of layers out of the complexity and get almost the same answer. 
because you know do you need 15 billion parameters or will 15 million do so i think there's clearly some work to do in making llms scalable i think there's some interesting work to do to make them customizable but i don't think they're the last they're the last word right they're no they're nowhere near being a brain yeah um now they're good enough to actually fool a simple turing test but turing the turing test as you remember was a thought exercise Yes. It was like, oh, if I could do this, then that would be an indication. It and wasn't course, like it was, yeah. Of course, it actually, what ChatGPT is, is basically a Chinese room. Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Anyway, it's yeah. a Chinese room. It's, yeah. it's very widely trained, but it's that. Um, the other mm-hmm. one I saw recently was that I think the New York Times is trying to figure out whether they're going to sue OpenAI for using their content, yeah. right? Because the, the whole problem. idea that you can train you can use everyone's stuff as content. I and mean, I think there's also a couple of people talking about doing it for book authors. So I think the large language model, business model has a way to evolve. Yeah, a long way to evolve, yeah. But no matter what it does, so there'll be, is there'll the be next, underneath it. I was going to say, the next version of Ethernet will be written by ChatGPT. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> oh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, because this would be, it would hallucinate parts of the state machine, which would probably be bad. <laughs> uh, so are there any other use cases for Ethernet that you can think of that are interesting or people might want to watch for? Or, I mean, are we going to have like, well, so, the, you so know, there's an interesting one. I don't know. Do you know are we going to have one billion you know, bit Ethernet coming up? Is do you that? know David Bumble? Uh, yes. Okay. So David actually has a YouTube where he puts a, he puts a network today together with 10 base two and 10 base five. He puts a modern network together just for fun. Um, you know, I think that it gets tricky. We are fundamentally a simple tool and the tool gets used for lots of things and how the tool needs to look really depends on what those things are. So I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be fast, cheaper, longer reach, easier to adopt. Okay. So um, is there going to be a, a brand new thing coming like that, yeah. up, like an EPON thing? Hard to say. I'm not sure there are many brand new topologies coming up. Um, there might be, in which case we'll have to do something new. I think we Ethernet is an enabling technology, right? There is no reason to build it for itself. And so it's not so much that we innovate something brand new, but it's like the use cases change. And that's what I'd argue when we drifted from service provider into the hyperscalers. Right. All of a sudden, long-range optics or standard-range optics are a lot less interesting. Yes, I know you have, have them in some places because they run between data centers, but the short-reach short stuff became much more interesting because the volume just went up. Yeah. You know, right. if, if you think about it traditionally with a new speed, originally you do you do the single-mode fiber with long-reach will be the first ones, all right? And multi-mode would come a while later. But now, really, the shorter reaches are what drives your volume up front. Yeah, correct. Because there is, like you said, there's so much of it and there's so much east-west traffic in all these data yep. centers now. There's just so much, yep. literally so much traffic. I think, you know, I'm sure the number is different now. It used to be one to 10 for every one byte uh, or one octet of data that was sent into or out of a data center, 10 octets were sent across the fabric. I'm sure it's much I, higher I, than I, that I, I think it's going much higher now. Yeah, right? I'm the, sure it's, it's like- The whole idea of having everything move around and microservices and everything else is cool, but it did make, I mean, the data yeah. patterns in a, in a DC are just so different from an enterprise. They're not, that's not funny. Yeah. And so something, you know, the products built for enterprise and products built for DC are different for a reason. And so I yeah. think we're, you know, as an industry, we're better about building the products that suit the use case. Now, which does mean, of course, we need the people who want stuff to tell us ahead of time 
because it's no good to tell us after we built something, we built the wrong thing. Yeah. So, so I would encourage everyone with a cool idea, I mean, spend some time with your vendor saying what it is you want to build and why, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm also very curious about the whole thing of like the lower speed stuff over Twisted Pair and stuff. You're focusing that on factory floors. What are the mm, odds bigger that than might... that? Bigger, bigger than that. Okay. It's, it's control systems. It's OT. So okay, it's not so just factory OT. floors. It is the control system for factories and buildings. Okay. And so what are the odds that might be useful in the area of bringing even 10 gig Ethernet to homes that can only be served because they're only on old copper down the road, or is that like it, that's more of a GPON area? I know, but like. yeah, I mean, I think it's I think that's a GPON or DSL type thing. I mean, okay. you can do stuff in DSL that you can't do in normal Ethernet for a bunch of oh. reasons. But you so know, AT and T's not, not selling that anymore, right? Um, yeah, I mean, DSL's yeah. dead, basically. Yeah. So, but if but if you wanted to solve that problem, you you'd have to reinvent it. I think. Okay. Um, I mean, we're not we're not trying to solve that problem because that's not our problem to solve. Right. Um, we're trying to look at. I mean, the space we look at because we've been driven to it is. So a friend of mine is involved in. He works for Panduit. A while ago, they built a Lee Gold certified building, and they put everything they could possibly put onto four pair Ethernet, and they still had they had six hundred thousand feet of four pair, and they had five hundred thousand feet of single pair. So I'm going to make the argument that in most buildings, there is more single pair cabling in there than four pair. And most of it's running old shitty RS232 protocol, or RS485, 422 protocols, mm-hmm. uh, 4 to 20 milliamp, and that's the space. Now, Russ, you, you have enough history. I'm going to ask you the, the question. Why do you think Ethernet won? I think Ethernet won because it ran on top of existing cables as much as possible. <laughs> okay, but the first two didn't. Right, correct. And in fact, I installed ArcNet in an old building mm-hmm in Morrisville, New Jersey, a law office, mm. because they were infested with um with um different kinds of different types of um insulation that you couldn't touch. Sure. Like you, you basically, yeah, yeah. you know, you couldn't but take so, it out so, of the wall. But everyone everyone knows that an existing facility recabling it is just a nightmare. Yes. All right. It so, is. so here's here's the way I say it. So there's a great book which is the history of 3Com. It's called the 3Com story, something similar. You can go out and find it. And in there, it talks about when they had first built CheaperNet, right? And they were really excited because they said, you know, instead of the vampire tap, this is a simpler cable. It's a BNC connector. It'll be just wonderful. And so they got Steve Jobs to come and take a look. And they're like, we're so excited. This is going to be great. And Steve Jobs looked at it and says, this is, this is crap. This is dreck. Like, which idiot built this? Why don't you put it on the, on the telephone wires? Yeah. And that was the time when they deregulated and people owned their wiring. And so I think the ability to go over what's there today is really important. And and for a while, we sort of forgot that. I mean, for a while with the base T's, you, the new thing always needed a new, a new cable. And here's the way I tend to say this. So the interstate highway system started being built, I think, in 56, you know, ended in 1995 or something, you know, X thousand miles of highway, X billion dollars. And the lane width, I think, is 13 feet. And then you think about the Corvette in 2056 and the Corvette in 2024. They're very different cars. Imagine if the Corvette in 2024 is 14 foot wide. Where do you use it? Just yeah. build a new city. Right? Now, I yeah. think in a hyperscaler data center world, they actually can do that. But for the rest of us, not so much. 
Yeah. So the ability to work within existing infrastructure or even design patterns is how you find success. Yeah, because because atoms are harder to change than than bits. That's and so when we when we did twenty five gig single mode, which I was part of getting done, we set the require the reach and quality requirements to be the same as ten gig run. Because if I could do that, then the upgrade was change both ends and it will be done. Not can I figure out whether this new one is okay. So the ability, as far as you can, to use existing infrastructure or at least the existing design pattern drives adoption. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's going to become more true over time, I think, not less true. I think I think we're I don't know, the way the business cycle is going, I think we're going to see fewer new buildings built and fewer well, new so, so I mean, stuff. As, as, as you know, Russ, often from the IT side, we tend to look at the OT side and say, like, why are these guys thirty years behind? Yeah, and a bunch of it is because they deal with risk. So, if you're in a building and the CEO is there and a network falls over, that's embarrassing, and people use their phones or they go out for coffee. If the if the system fails and the lights go off and the air conditioning goes off and the, the doors don't open, that's worse. Yeah. If you're running a factory and you're running an aluminum smelter or aluminium, if you're Australian and the power goes out, it freezes. So they're dealing with a different level of risk and with facilities that live for a lot longer in general. Right. Yes, I know we have old historic buildings, but if you put up an office building today, you're probably looking at you know a 30 to four year life cycle, right? I think I was reading the only facility in the US that they make the steel for 155 millimeter how um, howitzer shells is a factory that existed before World War II. Yeah. So those facilities last for a very long time. And if you want to shut them down and recable them, that's a long time. So as, as one more story, so my, my father-in-law is a welder and lives in the Valley of Victoria at the full of coal mines and power plants. So every couple of years, they'll shut down a part of the power plant for major maintenance and they'll do like six stakes of these maintenance. And that time I can change endpoints, I cannot recable. So the ability to, and and one more, and the a friend of mine said that last Best use for an old cable is to pull the same, a new one through the same duct. So use the existing infrastructure or keep the design pattern, you make it adoptable. Anything else, it's like, why don't yeah. you build me a new city? Yeah. And by the way, I, I actually think that it's good in another sense because we are far too willing to rip things down and build things with a 30 and 40 year life cycle. And we have no respect for our history any longer. Our history just disappears. And it's sad to me that you know these so i would agree with you but that's a that's to some I, extent that's more of a morality problem, I know, I know. problem oh yes of course it is but i'm just saying it is it is one of those things that like it's important to figure out how to use old old stuff because it's still good and you know stop so, stop, so like I, stop so i described building <laughs> um, as my thing has become adding value to infrastructure Yes, and it first started with with uh, you know UADP Doppler stuff because we built a system designed to be flexible enough to deal with your needs over seven eight years, not over three. Now, if you're putting up a network and it's a pop up in a building for a year, like put in the cheapest network you want. But if you're putting stuff out in a big bank branch network, for instance, and if you look at your network seven years ago and today, and you go, did stuff change? And the answer is yes. And then you say, is it going to change some more? Yes then you better put in stuff that's flexible enough to support that change. Now, unfortunately, of course, this always means that's a little more expensive and we have to basically sell that value. Yeah. But I think the goal is that you should be able to add value to infrastructure that exists. Because then, you I mean, 
it's business is good and it's morally good. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So, well, I don't have anything else. And we've been talking about AI and Ethernet and morals and ethics for. <laughs> it's this crew. What did you expect? <laughs> it's cool. I don't really care. I don't have any advertisers to keep happy, so <laughs> I don't keep them happy. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know that if you stay on the line, I will keep talking. So at some stage, <laughs> you, you, you might want to finish. Yeah. So uh, before I like wrap up and like mute <laughs> Peter forever. <laughs> Tom, anything else you want to ask or come? No, this has been great. Thanks for yeah, coming on. Yeah, it's been great, Peter. Um, so I, you know, so I'm I'm lucky. I get to go do this. I get to go and talk about a technology that I think is actually really important and solves problems that matter to people. Right. Yeah. So this, from my point of view, this is a very cool thing. And I think, as I, as I said to you before, um, I'm someone with lots of opinions, and some of them are right. So all this should be taken with an appropriately large grain of salt. Yeah, that's cool. And Peter, you know, you're also always welcome back on the hedge. Anytime you want to come hang out with us and talk about whatever it is, we'll set and up a time and a recording. That works because, uh, as I said, this stuff is just fun. And I think, so, last story, I promise. <laughs> Imagine you went to the, the Louvre and all the paintings are sitting on the ground. The content is all there, but you can't consume it. Context lets you arrange stuff in your head to make sense of it. And Russ, I believe that sort of ties into the book you're writing at the moment. Yes. It's the right context for information so you can digest it. Yes. And this is what I think this is, right? It's context for people, stuff they don't really have to hear, but when they do, it lets them lets them make more use of other information they already have. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So anytime you want to come back on, let me know. All right, Tom, how can people get in touch with you? You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for Tom Emmon. You'll find me. And Peter, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter. It's Peter G. Jones. Go take All a look right. at me. <laughs> cool. And um, I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at The Hedge on rule11.tech on the platform formerly known as Twitter. I don't know what else to say there. <laughs> we, we have to get the acronym for that. Do you remember that we had the acronym for the artist formerly known as Prince? <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, that's right. Well, I wonder, if, I wonder if someone has the website for that name. <laughs> The, the platform falling in those Twitter. It's Twitter, yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know, wherever else, LinkedIn, etc. Um, we know your attention is really important in this crazy world, and we're very happy that you decided to spend just, I don't know, however much time this was listening to us chat with Peter about Ethernet and AI and all the other odd things that we talk about. Um, well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.